what has nourished human beings for all time we have the evidence not a question we're not like on some kind of goddamn spiritual ass quest we have the data it is connection it is community it is a sense of purpose it is having your basic needs met that every human being needs and it's you know fighting for the right to have those things for all of us Welcome back to Let It Out. I'm Katie. This week, it's a conversation with Virgie Tovar. She's an author, activist, one of the nation's leading experts and lecturers on weight-based discrimination. She holds a master's degree in sexuality studies with a focus on the intersections of body size, race, and gender. She's a contributor to Forbes, and she's been covered in the New York Times and the BBC and MTV and NPR and so many more, so many more credentials. She has an incredible TED Talk. She's written multiple books, and her podcast, Rebel Eaters Club, is in its third season, and I love so much. We talk about a little bit at the beginning of this. She lives in San Francisco and she's a friend of mine. We talk about how we met. She actually did the podcast about a year ago and we didn't have enough time. And I really wanted to have her back on. And here we are. And turns out we didn't have enough time this time either. So I'm going to break it into two. I I don't know how you feel about me doing that. I'm not even sure how I feel about me doing that, but we're going to try it again this week. And Next week's episode will be the second half or actually the the third. If I cut this into thirds, I'm going to give you two thirds of it today. And then next week, I'll give you the last bit where we cover. Well, I'll tell you at the end what we cover. But as I always say, the very end is when it really comes alive. So come back then. And I'm going to add in some other. I'm going to make it a little bit of a collage, add in a few other clips. And before we get to this week's episode, I want to read a definition of normal eating that was given to me on my first day of eating disorder recovery. And I kind of haven't stopped thinking about since. I mentioned normal eating a few times in what you're about to hear. And whenever I do that, I'm referring to a definition of normal eating by someone by the name of Ellen Satter, specifically from this book that she wrote in 1999 called Secrets of Healing a Healthy Family, How to Eat and Raise Good Eaters. And like I said, it was given to me by someone in 2012. And since then, you know, I refer to it often. I've definitely talked about it here before and posted about it. And I just want to start this episode reading it because... I read an article somewhat recently where the writer said that she had this hard rule that she never eats standing up. And after reading it, I too made that a strict rule. And every time I am eating dry cereal, standing up in my kitchen with a cabinet door open, staring into space, I feel shame that I couldn't stick to the rule like she can. 
I eat for comfort. I eat to soothe myself. I eat to avoid my feelings. Emotional eating, that's what that is. And I often do it standing up or sitting down, but usually standing up. And there's, you know, some mental gymnastics that I have to do to remove so many different rules that diet culture puts on us, including that one that I just read in passing in this article, and try to take that bit in my brain and switch it to believe that there's not really shame in eating standing up or sitting down or driving or late or early. There is no normal. However, if there was going to be a normal, I think it's letting go of judgment. And I think it's stopping judging ourselves, being more gentle with ourselves. And I think Ellen Satter's 1999 definition of it in her book is an incredible place to look to as someone who has a very complicated relationship to food and my body. And I think we all do in some way. And we've all been really dysregulated these last few years. And with that, I'm just going to read this definition before we listen to a conversation with Virgie that talks about a lot of different things over several topics. And she's really incredible. So here is me reading a definition I really love. Maybe you've heard it before. And I always love a tune-up hearing it again. So here it goes. Normal eating is being able to eat when you are hungry and continue until you are satisfied. It is being able to choose food you like and eat it and truly get enough of it, not just stop eating because you think you should. Normal eating is being able to give some thought to your selection so you get nutritious food, but not being so wary and restrictive that you miss out on enjoyable food. Normal eating is giving yourself permission to eat sometimes because you are happy, sad, or bored, or just because eating feels good. Normal eating is mostly three meals a day or four or five, or it can be choosing to munch along the way. It is leaving some cookies on the plate because you know you can have some again tomorrow, or it is eating more now because they taste so wonderful. Normal eating is overeating at times, feeling stuffed and uncomfortable, and it can be undereating and wishing you had more. Normal eating is trusting your body to make up for your mistakes in eating. Normal eating takes some attention, but it is only one important area of life. In short, normal eating is flexible. It varies in response to your hunger, your schedule, and your proximity to food and your feelings. Okay, and with that, here is my conversation with Virgie Tovar, part one. We recorded, I texted you this earlier today, about a year ago, less than a year ago. It was July of last year when you were in LA and I came to your very cool Airbnb and I pulled up my notes from last time, which had the address on it. And I was like, oh man, I remember going there. And then I texted you a photo of us because then I went into my phone and found this photo we took together and you were wearing the best outfit. Do you remember what you were wearing? Yes. It's like I had found this hamburger sweatshirt 
that it was made. It was like a hamburger with like teeth. Mm-hmm. And it's an artist who I can't remember the name of, but she's really amazing. I found it at a garage sale. It was too small for me, but I was like, I'm going to cut this up and turn this, turn this into like a halter top. And so I repurposed it for LA weather slash my larger body with scissors. And I, I still, I, I still have it to this day. Well, you got to bust that out this summer because it was an incredible outfit. And I feel like we were on a real, I was also wearing this like children's t-shirt that had like a rainbow alien on it. Yes. Yeah. It's my friend Breeze that I was borrowing and I should ask to um, have her loan it to me again because it was a, it felt like a good compliment to your, to your outfit. Yes, I agree. I mean, it was like two whimsical little babes in a pod. <laughs> and it was very hot. And I just listened to that conversation right now, right before this, because I wanted to remember what we even spoke about. But it led to us having this conversation around getting dressed and bodies and a uniform and how we interact with gender within style and somehow my mom and like how she would dress and how she would dress sort of hyper feminine for her larger body and how that impacted me. And, you know, it was just, it led to a really interesting conversation and it could have been a drinking game. How often I said, please come back (laughs) because I have so much I want to ask you. I could just kept saying that over and over again. And I could tell, I could feel my anxiety around our limited amount of time. And our limited amount of time was mostly because we spent the first hour and a half off mic talking about dating and feelings and friendship and how much we loved each other. And then I was like, ah, shit, we got to (laughs) record. Yes, and the boozy pineapple memory. Oh, right, I'm that was like so good. Yeah, can you let's let's start there because your show you talk about food to start. Can you talk about the the premise of of your podcast? Yeah, so my podcast is called Rebel Eaters Club. We're in season three now which is really exciting, and you know it really is a podcast about exploring the human relationship to food and to eating in the cultural backdrop of the United States and obviously beyond, but like, you know, through the lens of the United States where their relationship to food and body is primarily characterized by fear and anxiety. So it's like, how do you take this thing, food and eating, which is natural, inevitable, emotional, and put it in a container where everything is filled with terror the fear of making the wrong move, the fear of food making you like the quote unquote wrong size or giving you a disease or killing you. Like, I mean, it's, it's, it's been really powerful talking to people from all different walks of life. Like some people are academics, some people are artists, some people are dietitians, some people are like, they're eating disorder survivors and all kinds of folks. And really just like, you know, learning that food and eating really are these universal realities. And everyone has this, like, has these incredible stories that are really focused on food. So it's really about kind of that. And specifically kind of like, there is absolutely a political feminist agenda, which is like to carve out space for food to be 
super positive and non-judgmental and like all food is good food, all bodies are good bodies and really, you know, helping people. I think like in some ways, right, the podcast is a space where it's kind of like the space I like to create at my own dinner table or whenever I'm out with my friends where we don't judge how we eat and we don't, you know, talk about our bodies in this really negative way while we're eating. And I think that a lot of people need that. And so it feels really good to be able to create that in a podcast. Mm, Well, I need that. And it's funny. I feel very close to you, even though we've only hung out in person that time. And then a, well, I guess three times because we had lunch with Isabel for her birthday. And which is really what I was about to say is like, why I feel so, so close to you is because we share this mutual, very close friend. You know, Isabel's one of my best friends. She's one of your best friends. So I feel like by default, does, doesn't the math check out that then we are close to friends? Yeah, even though we don't. Property. Yeah. yeah, by the transit. That's right. The, I'm so sorry. The transitive property. That's right. Long division. <laughs> Absolutely. Put in a Pythagorean theory in there and ipso facto <laughs> best friendship. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we we share this wonderful, mutual, close friend of ours, Isabel Fox and Duke, and mm-hmm. she connected us. And then for her birthday, we got to, you were then in LA for like a month and we recorded this. And then you also came into the shop that I work at, which was so cool. And it was so yes. fun to get to, we, I helped you pick out a snack. I remember what you got. Yes. You got this really great cheese made in Michigan. Yeah. And it was a real honor and a privilege. And my really good friend who I made from working at the shop works at this shop down the street from the shop I work at called the Plus Bus. And her name is Emily. And she is like a big fan of yours and knew about you and like knew you're coming to the shop. And and that was like a... It created a conversation between us where we were able to become closer friends because we had this shared mutual love for you and and then your work. And then that mm-hmm. gave us a shared language. So that was really cool. And we became friends because she would come in on her break and buy, buy snacks. And it's just really special to have you here again, because we've been wanting to, to record this and, and reconnect for a while. And it's great that we have that conversation too, because it laid the groundwork and people can go back and listen to it because like I said, I listened to it today and the way you speak about these topics and concepts that are so important, and but you speak about it in this language that just sort of goes right in for me. And it's it's been really helpful to me, even before I knew you, hearing you on our other mutual friend, Christie's podcast and reading your work and listening to your podcast has been so important to me. And I don't know if I had said that to you last time, but I'm just really grateful to get to be your friend and, and have you here twice. Oh, thank you. I'm really glad to be here. So back then, I started asking a question that you told me about at that lunch, actually, where you use this in a business way where you're whenever you're having a new conversation with someone about an opportunity or you're starting a new project, you ask people what's exciting to you right now. And I think that's such a great question to ask anyone, but I'll start this by asking you that now. Yes. Oh my God. I still love that question. I literally just posed that question in an email 
to someone I'm going to be working with. Um, <laughs> so that's so funny. It's really good. I, I encourage people to give it a whirl. Yeah. Yeah. And I think also it's like, you know, I think people, especially like in our culture, which is so obsessed with like discipline and self-denial and a lot of that's like a lot of our roots as a country sort of. So I think people think of excitement as almost like a frivolous, unimportant emotion. And, and it's like really reframing it as like, no, actually like there's very little that you can sustainably do with dignity and mental and spiritual health if it doesn't excite you, especially like, you know, when you work for yourself, which both of us do. Um, so I think, I guess, but to answer the question, I mean, my first thought was like a new development of interest is snails. I got for my birthday, I got this book called Snail World, Life in the Slime Light. And uh, my boyfriend got it. It was like really the top of my birthday wish list. And I started, I mean, I'm obsessed with nature. And I started to have this like really intense fascination with snails just somewhat recently this year. Um, And I started to really see them as they really are in a different timeline. And of course, like as like a feminist brainy theory person, I'm like, I wrote, so okay, let me back up and say a few months ago, I wrote a chapter for a book that was called, um, this is how we come back stronger. And it was like really a book that was, it's an anthology, a collected works by feminists all over the world. And it was a fundraiser um, book for this amazing project. It was like all of us in the depths of the pandemic writing about hope, writing about you know, knowing that the book was going to come out basically two years after the pandemic began, what we wanted to say to people, almost like kind of like a little time capsule. And I ended up writing an essay about chrononormativity, which is a very big word, but it basically means chrononormativity is the normative timeline that is set out by the culture about when certain events are supposed to occur. So for example, so like, you know, by a certain age, you're supposed to be married by a certain age, you're supposed to have a home and then have a child. And then all of us are quote unquote, supposed to like go to prom and have that first kiss. And you can kind of think of like, almost like, I feel like American cinema is like this perfect example of the American mythological timeline that we're all supposed to be on. And so people who are on that timeline, which by the way, I would argue are like in the minority, but we all think that they're the majority, right? The person who's on that timeline is on a chrononormative timeline. And it comes from like chrono is the Greek word derivative for the word of time. So like I, I got really interested in how the pandemic put us through us out of chrono normativity. And it slowed everything down. And like, I just, I was thinking about, and you and I a little bit talked about this last year, like all of a sudden the pandemic, any plans you had to like meet your partner by this time. So you could have a baby by this time. And you're maybe you were like, quote unquote, pushing that window, right. According to the cultural idea of when that's supposed to happen, right. All of a sudden the pandemic done, like you're not on apps anymore. You're not trying to meet your husband. You're not trying to like get prego. You're just like, trying to like survive. Right. And I think similarly work stopped. And I think the first indication for me and what I wrote about in the essay to begin with was like, I started to notice that because there was nowhere to go, people would just like let people in the intersections. And I I live in San Francisco. So like, you know, 
you're trying to get everywhere as quickly as possible. But during the pandemic, I have a stop, an inter- a four-way intersection with a, a stop sign right near my apart in front of my apartment. And so we would just, you know, if you went anywhere, which you weren't supposed to go anywhere, you know, you would go somewhere and you would just be stand, you'd just be sitting at the stop sign and the person in front of you would just let like three or four people flag them ahead. And then it, it was like, no one had anywhere to go. There was no urgency. And it was like this really extraordinary feeling of kind of like, oh, and this is a totally different way of experiencing time because the notion of productivity has been undermined because of a global pandemic. And so I think that that was probably the first time where I started to like really think about, I mean, I mean that, that work became the origin of my interest in, in snails as a feminist icon or feminist metaphor and specifically a fat feminist metaphor but i was like oh my god these snails are like on what might be called fat time there's an academic discipline called fat studies and other fat study scholars have written about what's called fat time which is just like the time when you're in a bigger body it takes longer a lot of times to do like certain things like walking from one place to another like maybe getting dressed there's sort of like the the immediate temporal reality of like being a fat person. But when you go back to the bigger, the chrononormativity around like, you know, certain points in your maturity that make you a real adult, because of weight stigma, a lot of fat people either don't have those moments or they have them in a weird way or they have them in a much later much later than they're quote unquote supposed to happen. So like for me, right, like my first kiss wasn't until I was like, almost 18 years old. And it was with like a grown ass person because everyone at my school treated me like I was like a monster. And, you know, like I think about like, I almost didn't go to prom because I had like two dress options in the plus size, like clearance section of Macy's or whatever, all these kinds of little moments along the way that kind of have been interrupted. So anyway, that's like one thing that I'm really, that's a long wow. answer. Like I'm really excited about snails. No, <laughs> that was incredible. And I love that it started out with being about nature because similarly, I don't know if you remember what you said last year, but basically your answer last time was finding bodies and finding beauty in nature. And you were like, you actually bring up the example where you're like, this cactus kind of looks like my armpit hair and this you gave all these examples and it was it was really special and you bringing up snails is so funny because i do this hike every full moon with my friend crystal who's one of my closest people here and she says i'm really good at casting like i'm good at bringing together a group and casting and mm-hmm. and one time i brought my other really close friend zoe and now the the three of us do this hike and it's really special. And anyway, there's a part of it that we walk up a bunch of stairs and I was in front yesterday and I looked down as a, wait, 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 you guys, wait a second. And suddenly there were, I mean, I don't know. I want to say thousands, but a ton of snails and I'd never seen a snail before, but I too, and I did my phone with me. I, I would have probably taken a photo that I could send to you right now, but I'd never, I don't, think I'd seen a snail before and watching them and watching them move. I felt really connected to them for some reason. And I've, I've also been thinking so much about seashells this year. There's this podcast about Mm. seashells that I really liked that I'll, I'll send you that kind of goes into the, the, 
a lot about seashells that I thought was interesting. And I listened to earlier this year and told like a billion friends about it. And snails have this, like you said, you know, the, the timeline, of course, you know, like I'm going at a snail's pace. And, and I too, even though, you know, not being someone who, not for the same reasons that you just described, but I also mm-hmm. had all of my <laughs> romantic experiences much later in life. And people say mm-hmm. that's a late bloomer that, you know, I've, I've had a lot of things happen on an interesting timeline. And mm-hmm. my last newsletter that I just wrote was about this exact piece. And it's related to a feeling that I think a lot of us have in maybe in our in our 20s too, but I'm I'm having right now currently and I happen to be in my 30s. But what I was talking about is remember that day in gym class when you had to run the mile? Do you remember that? Yeah, of course. There were like the kids who roll in and like under six minutes, you know, and they like, wow, everybody. And then there's, you know, kind of the normal paced kids. And then there's the kids walking with their hands on the top of their heads with the side cramp. And then, you know, way behind them, there was me, (laughs) you know? And I remember it was this real first time where I was feeling behind, you know, like I, I always felt behind. I was never, I was always the last person to leave the locker room. I was always very slow. And that feeling in gym class, it was because I was like, my slowness, my general slowness was publicly on display. (laughs) And therefore I felt shame. And it was really sort of the first time I felt that. And I was thinking that about that in relation to, we only feel behind when we're comparing ourselves to your point, right? Like we don't feel behind in a vacuum. And my life, timeline has felt very backwards to some people or to some people back in Michigan that I grew up with, or just, you know, like you said, it it is the minority. And I think the decade of our thirties is very different than the decade of our thirties has been in the past Yeah, or the first decade that's lived through like two financial crashes and a pandemic and, you know, all of it that had been on my mind. And then when I was thinking about my timeline, In my early 20s, I had a full-time job and a boss and health insurance provided by my employer and a long-term relationship. And then for a silly eating disorder reason, I was sober at that time. And then now today in my 30s, I have several creative projects that make some money, but I have about 10 million jobs. I work two retail jobs. I do SEO, I I do writing on the side. You know, I haven't had a long-term relationship in years. And I think I stayed out more late last month and I did the entire decade of my 20s, you know, because I'm in a different spot with my eating disorder than I was back then. And, you know, to like I said, to uh, for a different reason, but I think almost related, my eating disorder made my life very small and made me feel behind and maybe did put Mm -hmm. me behind, you know, or, or change the timeline. And ultimately, so much of it is out of our control and snails. I, I love snails. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing. I mean, I just, it feels really, I mean, right. Like I think at the end of the day, and I, I just, I think so much about this, like how we, we have this kind of mythology in mind that doesn't really match the lived reality around us. And yet no amount of countervailing 
data can kind of like convince us this mythology is just not real for like most people. And perfect example, a little bit of a counterexample to this. I've just been kind of processing, like I, I bought this pair of underwear from Universal Standard and in Universal Standard, my size, which is a size 18, is a medium. And I kind of was chatting with them about it and they were like, yeah, because the medium should be representative of the median, which in the yeah. United States is 1618. And I've just been trying to situate, and it wasn't like that, you know, because I, mean, I remember years ago, like in the depths of my like internalized self-loathing and this feeling that I was the wrong size, like the idea of being a medium, like having an M on my underwear would have like made me feel like proud of myself for like being quote unquote smaller or something than the size that I thought I was. But this was a totally different experience. I was like, what would it look like to actually accept, like to actually stand in the recognition that this body that we're all being told is like the body that we're supposed to have is not the median body, is not the average body. It literally is like the hyper minority uh, body. What would it look like to just be like, yeah, I'm standing in my median reality right here on my two feet. I loved what you said about just being slow. I think, and I've been, I think like the snail thing has, I've been talking about it with my friends and it's like, I think that what's amazing is like slowness though. I feel like I've always identified that as a fatness thing. I've talked to friends who are not in fat bodies who are also like slow identified. And it's like really fun to be able to be like, oh my God. It's kind of like when you realize you like, like kind of like when you realize that chub rub is something that like anybody of any size can have. I, I don't know if you've had this. Like I, I had this like great conversation with somebody who started like a company where she makes like anti-chafing products. And she's like, people don't realize it has nothing to do with your body size. It has to do with how you're shaped. It's so, like anybody of any size can have chub rub. And so it was like one of those moments where I was like, oh my God, this universal experience, like the transcends my like stigmatized identity or something. So it felt yeah. really good to hear you talk about, I mean, I, I'm not happy that you were ashamed, but I just like connect that story. Cause like, obviously I was that person. too. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I think what you're talking about and you said it connection, I think we all want connection. We want to feel less alone. I think now more than ever, we want to feel we want to see ourselves represented. That's why it's so important to see versions of ourselves represented in media. That's why it's so important to have inclusivity in, in spaces. And at the end of the day, I think so much of what we're talking about is connection. And when you can feel that with someone, even through what we're doing right now and we're recording it and we're going to share it, but hopefully people listening to us and reach out to us and, and tell us, and then I feel connected to them. And like, that's beautiful. <laughs> that's really lovely. And like makes me emotional to, to even talk about. And I think it's the things that isolate us. It's the things that especially feeling connection over something that was once shameful, because that's the thing about shame if you share it, it starts to dissipate and it only exists when it's in your brain festering and making you feel self-loathing. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, I kind of like, I mean, this is a little bit 
I had an emotional moment around this related feeling. Um, I'm a little, it's, it's a little bit fun. I'm a little bit like, oh my goodness, I'm a little bit of a cornball for this, but I was rewatching a league of their own. Yeah. Rosie O'Donnell, Madonna, yeah. Gina Davis. The new one's going to have Abby from Broad City in the Amazing. show. I'm just like really excited. Um, yeah. Anyway, so I was rewatching the, the, the movie and I hadn't seen it since I was like probably a kid or something, whenever it came out. And in it, right, you really get this snapshot moment where, like, you know, it's World War II. There's a woman on the team who, like, wasn't even ever taught to read. And, you know, these women are, like, literally being made fun of just because they're women. And they're kind of able to create solidarity because they're all, they love baseball. And that makes them all weird as women. And so it, it was, like, so intense watching the movie that was portraying this moment that wasn't that far in our collective past. And that frankly, I'm like scared, like literally a little bit of an aside, but I'm like, the other day I voted in the midterms and I was like, should I be photographed? Are they going to take my right to vote away as well? Should I be like really appreciating this moment and like really savoring that I as a woman have the right to fucking vote? Uh. like, take that too was like, I literally had that thought at the polling place like I like stopped in my tracks I was like wait let me like really appreciate this moment that I'm allowed to walk into a fucking voting booth and like vote because apparently everything's on the table now so but anyway like back back to kind of this oh so, that's so intense as a thought I know I know it's like I want to believe that that was like so a bleak. like as ridiculous as that, I mean, as like re- quote unquote ridiculous as that sounds, it occurred to me. Do you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, it, like, Rightfully it, it, so, it, like, came yeah. up for me in my head. Sure. <laughs> um, but, but all that to say, it's like, you know, I'm watching this movie and I'm kind of thinking about like how easy it is to kind of forget how far we've come and, and like how certainly women and obviously a lot of other different groups of people have had to like come together and make something work in like a hostile environment. And right, like we're not exactly dealing with what women in a league of their own right in, in during World War II are dealing with. But we're also, you know, we're also like in the shadow of that. And I think at the end of the day, like what really, to your point, what people like the universal theme for human beings is like that striving for connection. And I mean, like, like going back to disordered eating and like, diet culture, like that a hundred percent is about the miscarriage, really like the, the misappropriation, the exploitation of the human desire to be accepted and loved. And it's like turned into this weapon that we like use to harm ourselves. I think all of us had eating disorders and all of us did that stuff in some, you know, unfortunately very misguided attempt to like feel like we belonged. That's really just about being able to feel like you're connected to other people. Oh, exactly. Yeah. I mean, the whole reason people, we started dieting was to not feel other or to feel, or I think too, and I think in my case too, was like to feel special and different and find an identity with thinness or being underweight, right? Because society put this weird, which I know from your work and from Isabel's work of 
a society will value what is most difficult to attain, what costs the most resources to attain. And hundreds of years ago, that was a larger body because that cost the most resources to attain. And now that's, especially with wellness culture, it costs more to attain this other idealized version. And did I get that? Did I do okay explaining that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so from that, there's like this specialness, but really it's wanting to connect. It's wanting to feel good enough. It's wanting to feel even dieting itself, like as a act is something that people can find common ground around and kind of commiserate in. And I know you've talked about that and that can, that itself can be an identity. And, And going back to what you said about the underwear and the medium and the size, like that's huge. Like that is such a big deal of wanting to literally fit in. You know what I mean? Like literally fit in something and have your, especially like that, that is just so wild about the median and how most people physically are, isn't represented by sizing. And with that, it's wild how our culture, our society is really mean to fat people. And in so many ways that are are really heavy, like that always stick out in my mind, like, you know, medical testing and, and not making crash tests dummies that are for the size of most of the population, but also these other ways that aren't life or death like those, but are really intense, like the size of underwear. And <laughs> And then that that and then that this is all internalized. Like I am not someone, as you know, who is in a larger body. However, this has all affected me. And you and Isabel touched on this in your episode recently, where I have a parent in a in a larger body, and I, I saw that my whole life. And I, you know, it's it's it all impacts us, and just these little tiny things, these tiny shifts with the sizing thing too, I I want, I feel like I want to share this here because it's something that it's kind of has to do with nothing, but our other mutual friend, Christy Harrison told me once her and I both have, have fluctuated in our our weights, like pretty significantly due to disordered eating. (laughs) And that has always been something that has been, and everyone fluctuates in size as you know, it's very normal. And I, would really struggle with having to, you know, get all new clothes and get used to the the new size that I'm in. And Christy told me this thing once about dressing rooms where whenever she's trying on clothes now, she always just tries on the bigger one first and she's like if that fits then she's like great, then she's done. And there she doesn't attach worth to the size, right? She's not like it's better to be in the smaller one, right? And I was thinking about that the other day because First of all, the act of trying clothes on just isn't my favorite. And who knows? Maybe that's internalized fat phobia or maybe that's just kind of annoying or whatever. But I was in a dressing room recently and even the language of someone who is very kind and helping me, just the the way that they were like, oh, you definitely could get a smaller one. Are you definitely the way that they emphasize that or, or whatever it was like? as it was a marker of success and like a really positive thing. And I actually like wanted this particular item to be oversized. And sometimes I buy things bigger because I know that, you know, my body will fluctuate or who knows. And 
it just made for a really interesting moment in my brain to think back to Christy saying that. And then now hearing you say this, and it's just these little tiny micro things that we don't even think about, but they add up and it's, it's right there for us at all times that we have to face this thing that we're trying to let go of or not make such a huge part of our day. And it, there it is, you know, and we're at least expecting it on underwear in a dressing room. Yeah, I mean, totally. And I will say, like, I mean, it's interesting to kind of, I love talking about this because I don't feel like I talk about this really ever, but it, like the dressing room really is a fascinating place. Like, and I think I, I will say, I feel like most people I know despise the dressing room. And I'm somebody who like, I mean, I don't love how, I will say the one thing that I find annoying about the dressing room is how much I started sweating. Like it actually is kind of laborious to like take all your clothes off and put them back on. It's like the sweat part is like the only part of the experience that I don't like. Like I love like having an enormous handful of clothes and like trying all of them on. But I don't know if it's because I just like jumped right from like diet culture, like into fat activism and like, I don't know if it was like that cold plunge or that hot, pl- whatever it was. Like it was like a deep plunge into an alternative universe <laughs> that I loved. I don't know if it was because I had that like experience of being fully immersed in like a militantly pro fat world for like two years <laughs> that like, I, I don't know. It's like, I just, that was just sort of, I was like acculturated out of that, that feeling that I like you know, that I shouldn't like being in a dressing room. I shouldn't like seeing myself or like any number of things, but I will say recently I was in a, I was in a dressing room. So third love, which is like this amazing intimates brand that's kind of famous for their bras because they make like 65 different sizes, including half cup sizes. Yes. I I know that from the ad. (laughs) Yes. They have like a, so they have a store in SF. They have a few stores in California now. And I went in and I was like, I'm just going to try on like everything that's in my size. Basically. <laughs> so I have this like huge haul um, of stuff. And I was like really feeling myself really into it. Like kind of just like, okay, this bra does this, this bra does this, like these pajamas do this. Like I was just like having a little ball and, but I was overhearing the woman in the adjacent dressing room, really talking about how like she planned to lose weight. And so she wanted to like, try on some things with the understanding that she was not going to be that size for very much longer and may come back at the end of the summer. It was, it was like, I mean, I was just sort of, I mean, it got like in the, in these moments, like these conversations, I think I may have mentioned this to you even last year, like these kinds of like listening to this kind of stuff. I'm so immersed in my work. I'm so immersed in like the evidence-based reality of weight which um, it just, it's so, it's like second nature. It's like second skin. My brain doesn't even have to like process it. There's not even like a third step anymore. I just hear that. And all I hear is like someone who's very wounded, right? I don't hear like, I should be doing that. Maybe I should like, you know, like in, in diet brain or whatever, like, you know, there's a sense that you should be hopping on that mm-hmm. bandwagon whenever you start hearing it. I don't have any there is not even like a moment in me where i'm like Gah! like i want like stopping and like wanting right. to get on that bandwagon i'm just like i know what's on that bandwagon it's not it's not based in evidence or humanitarian anything it's not positive it is just literally 
misinformation and anti-scientific, anti-humanitarian trash. Um, and I feel really bad for like people who still feel like they have to be on that thing. And I don't mean that in a condescending way. I'm literally just like, you are, you are triggered right now. Right. I don't know that you're triggered. I don't think. And so like, anyway, so I'm just kind of like overhearing this and I'm just, I'm sort of having like a little bit of a depersonalized experience where I'm like, that's this person's narrative. And that's a lot of people's narrative, but it was really interesting. Like my response was to just like walk out of the dressing room with basically like just a bra on and like look at my fat rolls in this like public mirror just to sort of be like you know this is this is a counter this is a possibility that you could have like you could have this moment where you're just like I actually look really cute but yeah the dressing room is like such a fascinating space yeah Um, and it's definitely like I mean I feel like the dressing room in my mind it's like the compliment to the lunchroom at work where it's like just a place where the ubiquitous chatter around like bodies and food, it's like almost inescapable, you know? Right. Which, you know, it's funny. Like I, I, I brought that up. The dressing room is like, and I, I, I kind of said it like, I kind of, even though I'm obviously very familiar with your work in Isabel's and I've been someone who's been in a billion treatments for, for this situation. And knows this work well. And I wouldn't say that I am where you are, where I can just like kind of tune it out. But I, and we both share this for sure, which is like, we know, and I know enough at this age that I am, that I have a big enough sample size where I can hear something like that. And I can be like, even if I'm not where you are, where I'm like, all right, that's inhumane no, thank you. Just goes out the window. Even if I was, let's just say for the sake of argument, intrigued or like not, not even intrigued, but if I, I was pulled in by it for some reason, which I, I'm not sure that I would be necessarily where my brain would then go rationally is like, wait, 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 but you know where that goes for you. Like, you know how that ends. Like I've gotten a big enough sample size to know I can't engage in that because it makes me a, an asshole to be around. I know it's a very slippery slope. And I think the difference, even though I'm I'm probably a bit more malleable than you are, like I'm way less malleable than I was prior to knowing you and Isabel and all of this work that's helped me or when I was 20, right? And I think that's what's challenging about living in diet culture, living in a world that thinks fat is bad and thin is good primarily still that that's changing because of people like you and because of activists, but it's slower than I would like it to be. And I think it's incredibly pervasive of like right now, I just did it. I was like, Oh, you know, the dressing room, like why is the dressing room so bad? Well, it's, it's, probably bad because other than the lights being hot, we're like, that's not mm-hmm. even an issue for me because I'm like usually cold. That's To be honest, that's actually why I don't like it because for me, it's kind of the opposite. I'm like, I don't want to take off my clothes and I'm going to be cold and have to, you know, so we both kind of have a temperature issue. But other than the temperature issues <laughs> that we both have, it's just a place with a mirror, you know? And 
I think that could be fun, like you said, of like dress up if you're into that. And, you know, it can, I guess there's another way to see it, whereas like maybe money and indecision and who knows. But if we take away all of that, it becomes simply a internalized fat phobia issue. <laughs> and I didn't even clock that as I was just talking with you in casual conversation. And that's something I wanted to talk to you about hearing my friends of like just friends I have in the neighborhood or like friends that I talk to who, you know, maybe have never had a clinical eating disorder, but have engaged with dieting in some way or, are, you know, mm. by Ellen Satter's definition of normal eating, normal eaters. Mm. But still, it's so pervasive that they might say comments about their body or compliment someone else's body or talk about someone else's body in a way that I'm just like, oh man, what a bummer. And how do I, especially about their own body, like I have, I have a good friend who will often say things like, oh, I know I shouldn't, but I ate this thing or I know, you know, and I just, I, it doesn't feel like my place to be like, no, you should. That's amazing. But sometimes I do like, I'm just like, it seeps in. So we've been talking so much about focus on the show recently, and I have a product that I love so much. It's this little green drink that I take with me everywhere, and it's really improved my mornings and helped me to focus and given me a bit of an energy boost that I really, really love. I've given it to friends, and they love it too. It makes me really happy. My friend Zoe took it right before she was giving a big presentation. It doesn't give you the jitters like coffee does. And it has just so many great things in it, like ashwagandha that helps with stress and so many adaptogens. And it tastes really great, which is maybe my favorite part. I feel like you will like it too, if you're like me and have to be in charge of your own schedule and crave more focus and more energy. It's truly incredible. And like I said, if you're like me, I think you'll really like it. So check them out at magicmind.co slash let it out. And you can join a community of go-getters. You can use my discount code, which is let it out 20 to get 40% off your first subscription or 20% off your first one-time purchase. My 40% off code only lasts up to 10 days. So hurry and do that soon. I really think you'll love it and I'm excited to hear what you think. I've been loving it. You and Isabel talked about this and she was recently on your podcast and I just listened to that episode today, but you were talking a lot about how, I forget exactly how you articulated it, but it was to this point of how, let's say you do all this deprogramming of diet culture and become happy with where you are and and get into what you call radical acceptance of where you are with your body and where your body wants to be and you learn everything you can and you call it radical hopelessness right where that's what she calls it yeah yeah that. isabel yeah exactly <laughs> so we in this family isabel came up with radical hopelessness of like <laughs> it allows you to let go of dieting we're kind of like what i said where it's like for Isabel and I, it's like, and, and you know, you too, it's like, it's dark if we go that way. So we like have to go into this acceptance of like, all right, well, this is the way it's going to be. My body's going to be what it's going to be. But then you make this point, which is so good. And you, you give this analogy in that episode, which is like, it's as if you broke up with someone and you, instead of just being able to like have a clean break, you're having to 
run into them at the coffee shop and then also at the grocery store and see them all day long on billboards. And it's just in your face, diet culture telling you we're getting messages all day long of like, your body's not good enough. See, this is the media. See this. You should get this tea. See, you should get whatever, whatever. And Isabel gives the advice of like, try to get rid of as much of that as you can control. You don't have to follow that person on Instagram. You don't have to look at that thing, but there's so much that you can't control. Like a close friend of yours saying something like that or overhearing something in a dressing room. And I just thought that was really tremendous. Is, Is there, can you, go into that anymore? Is there anything you want to add to that around radical hopelessness and just the pervasiveness of diet culture seeping in everywhere? Yeah, I actually kind of want to um, share something that's related, but in a different arena. So I did it. I did an episode with this season of Rebel Eaters Club with Dr. Lori Santos, who teaches at Yale. She's sort of a, she's a positive psychology person and she basically is like she's like a cognitive scientist we talked about happiness like she has a podcast called the happiness lab and a big part of is kind of basically dissecting and deconstructing american notions of happiness and basically you know her whole thing is like the research shows that everything that americans are taught will give them happiness it just doesn't make just isn't what human make humans happy so she has this like enormous body of evidence, right? As like a as like a very long term, long standing, well respected academic. But so we got into this, we got into this concept called the hedonic treadmill or hedonic adaptation, and hedonic being like the same derivative, like the same root word of hedonism. So there's this phenomenon that psychologists have observed, where basically human beings, like every human being has a happiness baseline. Some might call it a set point. And if you've ever delved into weight science, there's a, there's the same concept in weight science of a set point. Um, so these psychologists are like, okay, we have this, we, we've looked at the research, right? Basically we believe based on the evidence that human beings have a set point of happiness And they basically, even in the experiences of like very high levels of, you know, hedonism, like very pleasurable moments and very, very sad moments that they will ultimately always return to their baseline. Um, This is what they've observed again from the researchers. So the, the hedonic adaptation theory is like, we have this idea that if we have something that we really want, that we're going to be happier and what and and sort of like the treadmill component or like the adaptation component is that fundamentally you basically always go back to the baseline. So and, and here's the thing, right? Like, and again, set point theory in weight science is the same thing, right? If you think of happiness, if you apply the like the concept of happiness and switch it out with weight, it's the same treadmill that we're on in diet culture. And here's the kicker. What I found really fascinating about this science was that exactly the same way that weight set point is largely genetically determined. These psychologists believe that your set point of happiness is largely genetically determined outside of your control. So, right. It's kind of mind boggling. Like I think what's incredible and what I feel like my work with the podcast and just my work in general has shown me is that basically 
all of our lives, we spend so much effort trying to kind of do all this stuff. And what science is showing us over and over and over again is that we largely don't have control over these things. And that our job as human beings is to be present, to accept, and to make meaning in the moment with what you have available to you. And again, even when you look at the research of what makes people happy, it's connection, community, sense of purpose. It's not money. It's not privilege. And so I think, I think it is really powerful to kind of, I mean, obviously by barring, you have to have like your basic needs met, like food, water, clothing, shelter. But after that, you know, we're really talking about very, very, very infinitesimal differences after that. So I I just think it's useful. I love that kind of, I love when like a totally different arena ends up finding the exact same things that we're finding in like weight science and fat studies. But I think like, you know, for me, it's like what Isabel, or I think certainly like Isabel's really influenced by Pema Chodron, right? Like Mm -hmm. who's also a radical hopelessness advocate, I would say. I mean, certainly like radical hopelessness is one way of discussing this, right? When you hit the end of the road and you realize like, you know, to your point, what you're saying is like, I know where that road goes. It doesn't go anywhere good. It doesn't matter how much I want to jump on that bandwagon. That bandwagon is going straight down a mountain and I know it. <laughs> you know? And so, right? Like, I think what's really powerful is like another way to look at it is to sort of say, like, you know, ultimately is to look at the happiness research, for example, a totally different counterexample of weight and sort of look at that and be like, holy shit, we can't even control. I mean, again, according to these researchers, well, well-researched theory, we can't even control how happy we are, man. Like, you're like it's, yeah. it's just so, and I think there's, honestly, I think there's something really joyful about that. And I think there's something really powerful and like that radical hopelessness or, or what might be called, right? Like the universal human condition. Um, <laughs> like there's, again, right. it's, I think there's the potential for connectivity in that acceptance of the lack of control, you know? Exactly. And I I think what we're really talking here about is surrender. Surrendering to we're not in control. We're all going to die and we can't control that, right? Something Isabel said to me very early on was about this, about control and about... Because for me, I mean, for many of us, I think, and and she, she knows this about me, but I have a lot of, it's hard to like explain this without going into like every minutia of my eating disorder, you know, but the way that it, it's control, you know what I mean? And it's very like OCD and it's very intricate. And she knows a lot of these intricacies as someone who's known me and and it for over a decade. And I remember early on her, her saying to me, Every religion exists, every practice exists, every uh, every addiction kind of exists because even subconscious it's like trying to control in a world that's like very uncontrollable. You know, we're all going to die and we don't know when. And that's just like a reality that human beings know about that other animals and beings don't and we go on through our lives and trying to find happiness in these things that are fleeting, right? Like when you were talking about that and the set point and and when you were like, and here we are trying to make this thing happen, 
that's just not within our control. And you think of like the serenity prayer and, and of accept what you can, change what you can, know the difference, you know, accept what you can't control, change what you can control, know the wisdom to know the difference. And that's kind of it, right? Like that's kind of it because everything we think we want that's fleeting is it's a gamble, right? It's like the uncertainty that sort of gets us that's that can be alluring. And as you were talking, I was thinking about David Foster Wallace's This is Water, right? When he talks about worshiping, right? And he's like, worship fame and you know, you'll always be hungry for more. Worship your body, like that part always gets me because I'm like, oh, that's my like thing. Like that's where my my brain goes to. And Isabel brought this up in your episode where she was saying, you know, her eating disorder and dieting started so young because she was like, here I am, privileged white woman, upper middle class. The missing piece for me has got to be thinness if I was just thin enough. Mm -hmm. And so then therefore that's where she went. And, you know, people even marginalized positions, there's so much more to that. But it was interesting to hear her say that because I think often for so many of us, it's like, well, my life will start then. My life will, and some people, it, the anxiety pulls in money and it pulls in controlling whatever, whatever. But I think in, in this conversation, like if I was just thin enough, then everything would be great and amazing. And having experienced being in many different sizes, you know, I'll say this when I've been at my sickest and the most fucked up behaviors that I've been doing to maintain that. I got a lot of compliments and I got a lot of attention. And that is not to say that people in larger bodies and fat people, you are like the epitome of this can live the most amazing fulfilled lives. And I feel so much better not being in that place. And I'm, I'm my life is better. But I think saying that fact, like I only say that to say like how fucked up the culture is that that still happens, you know? Yeah. I mean, totally. I do think it's important. I feel like one of the missing, and I, I'm, I always am like, I always feel a little bit not sure how to broach the topic because it feels so big. But like, I think to be fair, I, a lot of, I'm safely in a very loving long-term relationship where my partner treats me like I'm basically like a porn star, like his favorite model ever. Right. Like it's like, and I think that, you know, that has given me a lot of safety. And I feel like dieting for me was always about trying to secure. I mean, honestly, there's another episode of this season in Rebel Eaters Club where I talked to somebody who works with parents of children who have eating disorders and she breaks down what eating disorders and diet culture, like, you know, chronic dieting, is she basically is like, I mean, it's, it's kind of mind boggling. She's like, literally, I'm just thinking about it. Like when I was doing the interview, I could feel my cells changing or something moving. It was very, very weird and very, very corporeal, but she basically broke down. She was like, in order to talk about eating disorders, we actually need to talk about something that seems totally unrelated, which is emotional regulation versus emotional dysregulation. So she's like, let's just take food and stuff off the table for a second. Essentially, like a child who grows up in an emotionally dysregulated home is 
way likelier if they get any kind of messages about weight or whatever is, is way likelier to develop an eating disorder or start doing manipulative food behaviors. With absent, absent emotional dysregulation, it's really difficult for even an acute amount of weight stigma to throw someone into an eating disorder. So she's, I love how she just kind of like, basically she was like, okay, we all think of eating disorder as kind of this standalone thing. And obviously it's, it's in relationship to a culture that's very fat phobic, very sexist, all these kinds of things. But, you know, I point like Astro, I'm like, can fat stigma alone create an eating disorder? And she was like, honestly, there's not research on this, but this is my anecdotal conclusion. My strong professional belief is no. And I was like, what? It was, it was, it was like, it was great. So to back up a little bit, she's like, when a child is born, they cannot emotionally self-regulate. So they co-regulate with their parents. And if their parents have trauma that they haven't dealt with, or they're just emotionally dysregulated, the child will become emotionally dysregulated. And then whatever the barrel of the gun ends up being pointed at, that's going to lead them to like the quickest sense of safety. They're just going to go that way. And if that's like food and body, that's where the eating disorder is going to happen. So I think it was like really powerful again, to understand that like, this is literally just someone trying to feel safe. And we have the, obviously there's the second narrative of and they're trying to get privilege or beauty or affection or acceptance or love or, or to your point to be special. And that's all real. But like at the very core is emotional dysregulation. At the very core is that you were raised by an emotionally dysregulated person and you're trying to feel safe through controlling food. Yeah. Wow. That, I mean, it makes, it makes so much sense. And I think talking about eating and talking about the way that we, we're trying to soothe ourselves in a way we're trying to, whether it's through controlling wow. our food or binging or restricting and a combination of both. It's interesting. I, as you know, I, this conversation comes up from time to time. It seeps in here where an episode might not be as much about this topic as this one is with you, but it it comes up somewhat frequently here. And some new friends of mine started listening to the podcast. And it was a real honor. And in and, and, and one of the, the episodes, it, it came up and I didn't even clock it. Like, I didn't even like think about it because it's just so part of like, I talk about it so casually. And I'm talking about like eating disorder recovery and, you know, just kind of the things we're talking about here. And they mentioned this episode and we're, we're sitting in the back of the coffee shop together. And it led to this really vulnerable conversation where one of them shared about a sibling and then about interesting behaviors that we all have around food and body that I never would have known about. And we probably never would have had this conversation, but it just, it made me feel closer to them. It was really special to me. It was this talk about connection, you know, like if we can connect over dieting and like commiserating, or we can connect over wanting to change our bodies, we can definitely connect over taking away the shame of experiences or behaviors or wanting to be okay with accepting our bodies and and something that what you and Isabel both have reiterated to me is we're getting the other message all day long, right? Like we're getting the message of don't eat this and do this and sit on your hands and blah, blah, blah. 
So to counteract that, it's really good to have a tune-up, like a conversation like this, and have people in your life that you you can talk to in this way. And that is really meaningful and important to me. And I sometimes forget how much that that means to me. And even like at that lunch with you, I remember you you telling me about this interesting food behavior that you had. And it's something that I did too. And I never knew that anybody else did that. And just hearing something like that was so wild to me. I thought about it the other day, actually. And it's just these conversations are are really important. And I'm happy that your work exists and Christie's work exists. And, and so many people who have been seminal to me about, I don't do this professionally by any means, but it's by default had it's become an area of study for me for over a decade since I was in eating disorder treatment. And oh. I'm really grateful in a lot of ways because it's led me to so many people and concepts and, and things that I wouldn't know. And you quoted Bell Hooks talking about fat politics in our last episode. And I was saying, you know, do you ever get frustrated about when this movement gets hijacked by the wellness industry or hijacked by capitalism in this way that's making it essentially another diet, right? And and you had this response of connecting it to spirituality and connecting it to we mentioned Pema Chodron, who has definitely informed Isabel's work. And your response back then was, you're so happy that people are even getting a little bit of it and they might not go as deep into it, looking at it as this important human rights issue that it is that that you've gotten to it. But like people do with spirituality or Buddhism or whatever, you can take pieces of it and still gain value. And so I, I'm curious, you know, is there a Pema Chodron lesson that you've talked about on your walks with Isabel or camping with her because you guys went camping last weekend or anything recently that you look at that's helpful with that? Hmm, I mean... I'm trying to think of like something, something recent where I mean, I, like to, to sort of go like to follow up and to answer that question again. I kind of love the idea of a year later, where are we at with these? Like, yeah, totally. Time really capsule. Yes. It feels really good to discuss. Like, I mean, I think I'm still, I'm not, I'm like, I'm not surprised that that was my answer. And I think that I am largely still in the same place, right? Like, I think that's like a great example where it's like most people don't have the chops and in fact, do not have the desire to be a nun, you know? <laughs> and that's like a very specific calling. And I think of, for me, like, this is my life's work. And I think that, you know, there was a long time, there was a long time, especially as an early activist, where I really, I honestly did not have a lot of compassion for people who weren't willing to dedicate their entire life to like, a cause, you know? Um, and I think now I just don't feel that way anymore. Like, I'm just like, yeah, I mean, every, people don't, you don't have to do that. And there's a lot of value in your right to sort of choose how deep into something that you really want to go. And I mean, certainly with something like this, where, where the work is so deeply personal, it's, it's like when you, when you're talking about 
fundamentally changing how you relate to your body, you are talking about disrupting the trajectory of like Western civilization. Like this is like massive. This is not like some casual thing that somebody could just sign up for. It requires a lot of bravery, a lot of discomfort, a lot of time, a lot of energy, a ton of things. And and I'm just like aware that for me, you know, like this, this is, if I could make the metaphor of like parenthood, this is my motherhood experience. Like I'm fully a hundred percent all in. And and I'm just like, you know, in the same way that I don't want to have that relationship to like a human child that I birth, like, and some people do, right? Like, I just kind of think it's like all these different walks of life and there's a lot of value in people being varying degrees of engagement, interest, desire, and willingness. And I kind of think about that, but like to kind of, to think about like things that we've been pondering on our walks. I mean, I just, I really think of our, our conversations, like certainly with me and Isabel and me with other friends, it's like, there is this kind of evolution of, I will say I turned 40 this year and it was just really exceptional. Like it was just like so Mm. fun, so cute. And it was just so beautiful. And it was like, I got to look back on like all these wishes that I had that I sort of, I don't know, like I seeded them in the ground, so to speak. And they like have come to fruition and they've grown up. And so I think there's, there's something about that where I think that a lot of the stuff that used to really pull me in, um, like things that have been things that we've taught, but been taught by the culture that are really important or something. I think that there's just a sense that the, some of the shiny, like I was telling a friend recently, not Isabel, but another friend, I was like, I feel like being in your forties, um, at least for me professionally and personally, it's like kind of ripping away all of the smoke and mirrors and the glitz and glamour. And these are the things that we've been taught will give us privilege in our culture. And then applying that energy of like reapplying that beautiful golden varnish to the things that actually help humans. And that just feels like the process that I'm in. And and it's like, it's, it's a very, I think like for a long time, it felt much, you know, like an uphill battle. And at this point, I think it just feels like, oh, and in the same way that like, you know, it kind of goes back to the the finding of like the hedonic adaptation or the set point theory. I think it's just like, also my grandmother always used to say the devil doesn't know because he's the devil. He knows because he's old. Um, but I think there's something like magical about like, oh, you like you wake up enough times on the planet, you see enough things happen over and over again, and you start to realize, oh, this is what destroys the human spirit, and this is what nurtures it. And there's something kind of rhythmic, actually, to return to our our snail friend, right? Like there's something kind of like beautiful about just sort of saying like you have painted this like you know the, the the culture and history and whatever has created like you know all of has put all this like shiny varnish and shiny you know whatever like fool's gold all over all kinds of things that really destroy human beings and then we have to find the value and the things that really help us out and the last thing i'm going to say is like this year like 2022 in particular 
something really moved me in January where I was like, this is my year of just going all in. And I kind of like declared it in therapy. I was like, I'm just going to try this. Like, I'm just going to go one thousand on like everyone and everything. I'm just going to be like, we're friends. Well, I'm like fucking here for you. Like I'm in a relationship. <laughs> I'm both feet firmly in. I'm not like questioning. I'm just going to like be like, what if I was just here and I just trusted you and I was just like a thousand percent present and I was grateful and I was vulnerable and I just gave and I thanked harder than I'd ever thanked and I loved harder than I'd ever loved and I stopped having one foot out. And I was like, what if I just did this for a year and to see what happens? And it really has transformed my life. Like it just, it's, it's really extraordinary how something so simple as like, I'm just going to be both feet in, which I think like, you know, I, I certainly think for me as a woman, as a straight woman, as like an educated straight woman, like in the United States or whatever, I feel like I was sort of socialized to always sort of trying to level up, like whether it was with my body or with money or with my relationship or with my friendships, or like with my car, with my home, with my clothes. And I think stripping out the toxic bits of that, right? Because all there's, there's beauty in every single one of those arenas, like right? Like fashion is such a fun form of self-expression, but there's this toxic layer that's like put on it. That's really not necessary. And so again, it's just kind of like stripping that shit away and like just really getting to the heart of what has nourished human beings for all times. And to return to Dr. Lori Santos, we have the evidence. We have the evidence that it's it's not a question. We're not like on some kind of goddamn spiritual ass quest. We have the data. It is connection. It is community. It is a sense of purpose. It is having your basic needs met that every human being needs and it's you know fighting for the right to have those things for all of us Mm. wow yeah it sounds like you know you're going all in-ness is the opposite of when you're giving up dieting and you say you know radical hopelessness to allow or Isabel said you know to allow that to happen this is like radical hopefulness and what you're saying about each of these aspects of like, you thought that would be the thing. You thought the next thing would be the thing, like the Jim Carrey quote of, I wish everyone would get rich and famous to realize that's not the thing. You know, I feel like I've had that in terms of thinness, right? Where it's like, I had the unique privilege of being in this body temporarily that wasn't meant to be lived in and knowing that that made me more sad and and feel worse than ever. However, it's been like such an uphill complex situation around that for so many reasons. And in every area, there can be something like that. In terms of the body, it's right. Like what you were saying about in terms of age, it's like aging's right there. So like if you make your, if we make this about vanity exclusively, that's such a fleeting pursuit going back to the David Foster Wallace line of whatever we worship, we put value on. We all worship something, you know, make it your body. You're going to die a million deaths because you're, we're going to age. Right. And so I think with that, make it fashion. But if it's fashion for this certain reason or your clothes or money or whatever, there's all these egoic parts of it. And you 
to reiterate what you said, you stripped out all of the ego from it. So you're only left with the good parts. You're only left with the honest parts, the the truth, which is a way to connect, you know? Like I think it's really if you go all into to friendship and take out the part that's transactional, you know, I think so many of us are starved for connection because we're not having real relationships. Instead, it's this transactional, like, what can you give me or what can I get from you? Or what would, what kind of status would this have? And I think when we let go of all of that, for me, I've seen that too, where like when I was younger, I did look at things that way, not all the time, but I definitely did. And it was a lot of it was so subconscious. I didn't even realize I was doing it where now it's just like, everything got more simple. Like I just want to deeply connect with people and be a good friend and figure out how I can help other people, not in an altruistic way, but because I feel better and have a better day when I go and do tutoring in Echo Park, you know, even if I'm annoyed when I have to go there and I'm, you know what I mean? Like I feel better after. And I feel like there's so much of this that we only have limited brain power and capacity and we are denying ourselves the ability to connect and use it for goodness when that mental energy is going towards dieting. And you and Isabel talked about this, or she, this was such a beautiful moment of that podcast where she said her new year's resolutions were always, Oh, this like makes me want to cry. (laughs) We're always like around weight and being in a certain body or whatever when she was younger. And then she noticed that this year, her new year's resolution was being nicer to my boyfriend or whatever it is. It's like, you can have the capacity to be a kinder, more gentle human being when you're not taking up space with these comparative things, whether it's markers of success based on completely outside of the body or body or whatever. And and it's just, I really love that. And I'm so happy that that's happened for you this year. Yeah. I mean, it feels, it feels really good. I mean, honestly, I think what's so funny is it's just like, it's so simple. And yet I like literally just telling my therapist, I'm like, I can't, I just can't believe it. Like it wasn't like some radical, you know, it's not like some, something radical happened. It was just kind of like, I just made the choice that I was going to like, I mean, again, just, just go, go all in and lift other people up and make them feel as good as possible and reflect what I saw in them, like the best things I saw in them. And like, even specifically in my relationship, it's just like been as someone who has historically had a lot of really intense intimacy challenges and who's has a history of sabotage because I just, I'm so much more comfortable, like spiritually and everything alone as, as miserable as, as being like, you know, historically I've been like, so it's been so hard to be lonely, but it's also been very comfortable for me to be lonely because I just grew up very emotionally isolated, even though I was like surrounded by family, um, I didn't, I didn't feel safe around them. So it took an enormous amount of effort. And like, I just kind of want to like, I kind of want to draw a picture for you. Like I didn't realize this until afterwards. So my 40th birthday, it was like, you know, it was May 19th and it was like so much fun. And I did all these things. And like Andrew did all these sweet things, my partner, and I decided, I'm like, you know what? It's like my birthday. I'm just going to take like a fun bath with like a lush bath bomb that looks like a massive eggplant. It's from Valentine's mm-hmm. Day. Um, and it was like, so I'm in the bathtub and 
I'm kind of like laying there and I start crying just with like the gratitude and the joy and just like feeling so connected to, you know, there's like this little fern right above my bathtub and I was just watching it kind of bounce and dance in the breeze that was coming in from the window in the bathroom. And I was just like completely overcome with these, these feelings of gratitude. And at that point, and I'm just looking at my life. I'm like, I've got, you know, I've, I've like got the things that I've really always wanted and really strived for. And I'm, I remember at my, on my 35th birthday, I was also in a bathtub and I was crying, but I was crying from despair. And I was like praying to the sky, whatever, like ancestors got, I really didn't care. I was like, whoever is listening to this, like, just let me love someone before I die. Like just let me love one person before I die. Because I, I just felt like I just was so disconnected from other people, from the world. And a lot, I mean, I was always connected to nature, but like other human beings was always, were always, was always a challenge for me um, to really let them in. And I just realized like, you know, oh my God, that wish, that moment of Mm. despair and weeping and all of that, like, you know, that, that, that was five years and it was many more years in the making before that. But like, that was kind of the moment where I like, maybe that was my radical hopelessness moment or something. I was like, I just don't, I can't keep doing this. And to sort of five years later be at this point where I'm like, all in it's just, it's just really major and i think it really does speak to the again that human drive to connect and the human capacity to kind of like i mean i don't like in those 5 years i've gone no contact with my family i've entered therapy i've like you know, like i'm like all kinds of things happened right i think it, again it speaks to how for all of us we're on some kind of journey that's some version of that where it's like we just we have a culture that is like literally like like we're just trying to get from a to b and we have a culture that's throwing everything at us to stop us (laughs) getting to that place and i think about people like my family and there's this really grave sense of grief where i see the culture wins sometimes and that's really or our trauma wins or whatever you want to call it. Like, you know, and, but anyway, I mean, I have hope that when we like really are like, I'm willing to do what it takes, whatever it takes to like have that ability to connect to other people, to feel deeply, to feel connected. Like I'm willing to sort of pay this price tag. That is such an epic act of bravery. And it's unfortunate that it requires so much bravery in this culture to just do the, the thing that like, I, again, going back to what we were talking about earlier, like the thing that human beings are just designed to do, you know? Yeah. And I think when you talk about love and connection, you're talking about presence, you're talking about focus. And we've been talking so much about focus on this podcast this season, because I've realized like, that's really all I'm after. Like, I think I want to distract myself to feel better, but really I just want to get out of the focus fracture that I'm in and be able to to focus on something which is presence. Like whenever I can be present and 
that's where connection happens. That's where love can happen. That's where intimacy can happen. And it can be wildly uncomfortable too, but that's what dieting does, or that's what control, or that's what focusing on our body or, or getting, you know, whatever it is, like that's where my anxiety happens to pool behaviors wise, but it can, for other people listening, like it might not be that. And for me, it's, you know, I have several distractions or coping mechanisms or ways to get obsessed with something or, and it takes you out of the moment. It takes you out of presence. And I think it's really accepting this person said this, I had this very wild experience in Bali. That's like a very long story, but essentially someone gave me this, this piece of advice that's always stuck with me where, where he said, here now in this, right? Like just coming back to that when my brain starts to go everywhere else around everything we're talking about, I think it circles back to something that I've been thinking about a lot. And it's something I would do growing up and I, and I do all the time and I see it manifest in itself in different ways, which you and Isabel have talked about this before too. It's the I'll call it the coming back from camp syndrome, or you know, you you've talked about how you tried to turn your study abroad trip when you were younger into a diet. <laughs> and Isabel was like, Oh, yeah, like I totally did that every summer between school years. I wanted to come back and be uh, unrecognizable. And I do that now. Like I'll go on a trip and I'll want to be like. I want someone to see me differently. I'll I'll just have a week pass or like I'll know someone's out of town and I just want to like next time I see them to like there's this almost redemption quality or there's this I want to be seen different from how I am and thinking about that concept to what you just spoke about in the bath on your 40th birthday they're so in contrast from each other because one is about future projection one is about I will be okay when and this one is about like I'm okay now and Thank you so much for listening. That was my conversation with Virgie Tovar. Read her books, listen to her podcast, especially the episode with Isabel. This is a real love letter to Isabel. We talk about her so often. And come back next week because we talk about what I'm starting to ask about here, which is the coming back from camp syndrome. We talk about intimacy and dating and comfort within dating. We talk about being food positive and how she defines that. And there's going to be more, even more there next week. In the meantime, I hope you have a great week. If you want to sign up for the Let It Out letter, the link is in the show notes. I would love to talk to you more on the internet. Let It Out with three T's is this podcast on Instagram. And, you know, I know there's a large population of eating disorder recovery people who follow this show and... It's not a topic that we talk about all the time or on every episode, like I said earlier, but I'm really happy that we continue to cover this from time to time because it's really important to me. And I think it's pretty pervasive and, as I shared here, important to bring up. Okay, I love you so much. I'm so grateful that you listen and I will talk to you next week. <laughs>